Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 27th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So yesterday we asked you, our listeners, to chime in on whether you thought that the five-day week commentary podcast uh, was a viable ongoing concern or whether the clear um, slowing down and eventual end of the pandemic meant that the emergency that had incepted the five-day-a-week podcast from our original two-day-a-week podcast um, as a, as it was over, maybe we should dial back and uh, and I got to tell you, the response has overwhelmed us, and uh, just in sheer uh, numbers. So, Noah, Christine, wh- where are we in terms of the numbers of people who wrote to com- podcast at commentarymagazine dot com to express their view? So I did a rough count, and it's uh, Christine and I did a rough count. We read every single email, by the way, um, yes. and thank you very much, all of you, for the response. It was um, quite heartening, but at least 250 emails came in. And more are still rolling in as we tape. Yeah. So, and, and the overwhelming majority of you said we should go on, we should continue for five days. Is that, that right? Right. Yes. Say like nine to one, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so I guess we're going to do that. I mean, a lot of people had. So, those of of you who don't want us to continue, you really missed your shot. I mean, this this was your moment, and you blew it. Yeah. Just look. It's very simple. Just don't don't listen five days a week. Pick and choose your spots, and you know, uh, I subscribe to podcasts that I don't listen to some weeks when I don't have time, and that's the way it goes. But you know, but there was one uh, email I remember from someone who who was saying that. Perhaps it would be good if we cut back a little, but if I recall, his reasoning was because if it's every day, he'll listen and it, it stops him from doing other things he needs yeah, to do. Yeah, we, uh, we did should... hear we did hear from listeners that they would like to hear from more guests on the show, which was also nice to to learn that they enjoy ha- yeah. hearing hearing when we have yeah. guests on. Now we have a we have an interesting technological problem with guests. Just to give you bore bore the hell out of you guys, uh, the. The program that we use to 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 record the podcast, Squadcast, only allows us to have four individual speakers. So um, we can use other technologies to have more than four. Um, but that means if we're if we're using po- uh, Squadcast, which has various advantages. Um, it smooths out uh, the sound. It uh, helps us with uh, gaps and, and problems of that sort. Um, we 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 have to go to a uh, to inferior ways of of taping um, unless one of us is is not not here. So uh, we we'll, we'll keep that keep that in mind. We we love having guests and uh, uh, and we will. Maybe this summer we'll we'll uh, we'll use the the lighter load <laughs> to 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 downgrade our our tech a little bit and 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 go with a, a more ragged sound and and have some more people on. Um, I would say that the main thing that we heard 
just as the uh, behind the music, uh, the greatest SNL sketch of all time, the behind the music on Blue Oyster Cult, uh, said that, uh, you know, Christopher Walken said uh, he's got a fever and, uh, and uh, the only cure is more cowbell. Uh, we're getting a lot of more Abe. The people want more Abe. People have definitely spoken for more Abe. Well, much like the cowbell, a little Abe goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you think. You think, but imagine an entire version of Don't Fear the Reaper that was only cowbell. It it really could be parody. Just the greatest. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, anyway, thank you very much. Uh, it was indeed a, a real a pick-me-up, very heartening. It was, it was not designed to be anything other than this creed occur from yesterday when we when we didn't really know what it was that we were going to talk about. But today, I think we kind of know what we're going to talk about, um, and it's uh, a piece that literally just came out 35 minutes before we started recording this. Um, in the New York Times, uh, New York Times got a leak of the Biden budget proposal, which is going to be announced um, tomorrow. And uh, the the article codifies what we have been nibbling around the edges about in relation to Biden's uh, agenda, his wish list of things that 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 he wants. Um, and. Uh, there's been a general sense and understanding that, you know, Republicans don't care about deficits and Republicans don't care about government spending anymore. And of course, Democrats love government spending. And so the government spending as a a dominant political issue in the United States has faded um, because Trump didn't care about deficits and didn't talk about spending. And, and, uh, and obviously, uh, you know, no one, nobody seems to think that this is a potent political issue. And I'm here to tell you that um, that is about to undergo a rigorous real world test, that that theory, because this uh, piece uh, in the New York Times offers what might even be to liberal economists who are not who don't buy into modern monetary theory and the idea that nothing matters uh, might find absolutely chilling and horrifying. Um, uh, quite simply, the piece uh, piece by Jim Tankersley says that uh, uh, if the Biden budget were to be approved, we would run deficits above $1.3 trillion throughout the next decade Total spending by the U.S. government would rise annually to $8.2 trillion by 2031. That um, we would be, the, the budget deficit, this is not the overall debt, right? It's just the deficit. Next annual year, year. annual, the annual per year deficit next year in 2022 would hit one point eight trillion dollars uh then recede slightly and then rise again to about 1.6 trillion dollars annually by 2031 total debt held by the public would rise 
to 117% of the size of the economy in 2031. And by 2024, debt as a share of the economy would rise to its highest level in American history, eclipsing its World War II record. So let's just let's just unpack this for very simply. So we're 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 going to have spending on a level that we haven't seen since World War II. What happened in World War II? We were fighting a two-front war with 16 million people engaged in the war effort domestically in the United States, both private, public, soldiers, everybody. 16 million when the population of the country was, I think, 150 million. So almost 10% of the population was engaged in the war effort, which involved building the first real modern American military from scratch, beginning really in 1941, planes, tanks, uh, you know, amphibian landers, aircraft carriers, an unbelievable technological accomplishment that meant we just simply had to run the printing press as fast as we possibly could. Everybody seems to forget that after big wars like that, a recession follows. There's a re- there was a recession after World War One. There was a recession in 1945. Steep one. Um, this is the feel-good story of the year, and you didn't even get into the, the great stuff. <clears throat> because liberals will love it. The spending is the point. They don't care what you spend on. They just want to spend. And Republicans should love it because it's absolutely hilarious. According to uh, Mr. Bud, uh, Biden's aides in the New York Times say, they predict that if his full agenda were enacted, which is, I think it's like twice the amount of spending that they actually say in the in the, in the the budget, $6 trillion plus $2 trillion for this, $2 trillion for that, $2 trillion for that. Um, the, the economy would grow by just under 2% per year. 3% is just replacement level growth. So they're not even anticipating any growth as a result of all this spending. Moreover, they say that unemployment would fall to just 4%, which is not even 100% full employment. It's close, but it's basically where we're at today. And further, they, they don't anticipate that um, consumer prices would grow by more than 2.3% per year. That's their assumption. Consumer prices grew by 4.2% in April alone. They, their, their projections are untethered to anything resembling reality. Noah, this is a very important point you're making. I'm now looking at GDP growth stats during World War II. Okay? the At the point at which we had the highest you know, the, the level of uh, uh, de- the debt ratio because uh, there was a recession afterwards. Remember, we had the, the, the depression had, uh, though there had, there was, there was pretty significant growth, by the way, in 39 and 40, eight and 9% in 39 and 40, as we emerged from the depression. And of course, there was literally almost a generation of lost growth that had to be made up. 1941, 17.7% growth. 42, 18.9%. 43, 17%. 44, 8%. So that level of government spending at a time when the economy was actually considerably simpler and also had been in this, you know, unprecedented trough had a huge positive effect on the overall national economy. But we're now in twenty in the twenty twenties. We have a twenty one trillion dollar economy, I believe, uh, as of as of now, and uh, the and and this kind of level of government spending that we're talking about simply, um, even though it dwarfs all spending we can possibly imagine, cannot 
cannot lift the American economy to these levels, nor do, nor do the Biden people think it will. So despite the fact that they praise their green replacement of conventional energy stuff and climate change things that will will enhance the economy, they can't even come up with a scenario in which the level of spending that they're talking about will have any positive effect on the economy beyond what we might expect from a simply normal U.S. economy. That is a 2% growth in the economy is kind of pretty much what we've had for the entire 21st century, with the exception of the horrible trough that surrounded the financial meltdown uh, in you know 2009 and early 2010. I mean, that 2% growth, uh, Trump hit 3% at one point, uh, or the you know during the Trump years, um, so if we didn't do all of this, we could anticipate exactly the same level of growth as we'll get if we do all of this. I don't understand what that calculation is meant there, to tell us. Well, one of the things it's 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 clearly it, the political angling they're doing with this is very clear, and and, and the honest uh, liberal economists have already called them out on a few of the points. Uh, Jason Furman, who worked for Obama. He's, he's a liberal economist, not a super progressive one. He came out with a study last week that, that was looking particularly at the Biden claims about um, uh, child care money. They want to throw money at child care and, and preschools and whatnot. And he did a study which showed that actually that wasn't what was preventing parents from getting back into the workforce and that they couldn't really predict that there would be this economic boost from throwing all this money at parents for child care and whatnot, because it wasn't clear that that's what was preventing them from reentering the workforce. And this was a, this was considered traitorous by a lot in the, a lot of people in the Biden administration that he would actually, as an economist, give his opinion as an economist about something economically they were proposing to do. But it shows you, I think, there's a lot of in, um, among the liberal coalition, there's going to continue to be a lot of infighting, which is going to descend very quickly into knife fighting when it comes to the progressives versus the liberals versus Biden's overall agenda. Because the facts, as Noah pointed out earlier, don't comport with what they're claiming the reality will be. Well, but you the, said they're right. Throw, you, you know, it's kind of dismissive to say throwing money at the problem, but that is exactly what they're doing, they, you know, assuming the problem and just throwing money at it. The expenditure is the argument. The expenditure is the entire point. Well, exactly. Right. Right. Because and why is the argument? Because the the administration thinks and I think a lot of people agree with them. This is how a government shows it cares. Right. Look, I think, uh, yeah, uh, Christine is uh, uh, miming, uh, like throwing money the way you, you know, the way the way you sort of deal cards in a casino. Um no, I mean, I think there there is a, a bit of honesty behind these numbers. I, I give you an example of this. Why did the economy grow so enormously? Not only was there public spending of this, you know, but we had been in, a, in an employment trough in the United States, and then all these people got jobs. They got jobs in the war effort. They people went into the people went into the military. Suddenly, we were at full employment. Uh, remember, ten years earlier. 25 to 33% of the American workforce was out of work. Uh, now we can see already before this budget is passed, you know, I don't think this budget will be passed, but before any of this happens, we can see that we are on track yet again to getting to 4% unemployment. So it's not as though this massive spending 
is going to improve the American employment picture, the American employment picture is fine. What it is going to do is create that famous competition between public spending and the employment that it generates and the private sector and the employment that it needs. And what is the result of that competition that is mysteriously missing from this economic projection of the next 10 years? What's missing? Inflation. Indeed, the, the, this New York Times story says they didn't even, they, they, they're not even concerned with inflation. They're not even not thinking about it. No, they say that, that the rate, rates are going to go up. The cost of borrowing is going to go up. Well, and they have not right. taken that into account at all in these projections. Right. Well, they're, they're, so inflation has many sides to it. So the cost of borrowing going up, right, which, by the way, isn't so terrible. That is to say, I mean, we've basically been almost at zero, you know, close to zero percent interest rates for more than a decade. And, uh, you know, and it's like, that's not necessarily healthy. I mean, that's a sign of a stagnant economy. So if interest rates go up, uh, interest rates go up in part to choke down the possibility of inflation, but that's not the only form of inflation that there is, right? There's obviously inflation uh, that is comes in the form of, you know, increased competition for wages, which obviously has positive benefits for people who are in the, you know, t- turns it from a, from a, a worker, from a, from an employer's market to a worker's market, which has, you know, positive advantages. It makes our goods more expensive. So that harms our exports. It makes goods more expensive. So it harms those very employed Americans and their bottom lines and what they do every day when they go to spend on consumer goods and necessities. And it, and it cannibalizes, uh, things like, uh, research and development it cannibalizes inflation cannibalizes the retirement funds that people have been laboriously you know putting aside money for you know it's like if you if you save money inflation eats away at the value of the money that you've saved um and thus you know is a saving money is an important element of a of a healthy economy uh, creating a, a pool of capital um and uh, people in inflationary spirals stop saving and they start spending because the money is worth more today than it's going to be worth in a month. And why would you then, you know, keep it in a low interest bearing checking account, uh, you know, or low interest bearing savings account when you, you know, when whatever you, whatever you get in interest isn't going to make up for the inflation. That's so inflation has 10,000 different spikes to it. Um, and it's it's interesting, but I just want to go back to the moral frame of the World War II era, right? Which is we were fighting a war against the Nazis and against the Japanese, against the Axis. Uh, these, uh, you know, for this basically to save the world. What are we fighting for now? Now they'll say we're fighting to save the world from climate change. That doesn't really explain why you need to spend $2 trillion on childcare. But nonetheless, um, that's why you always get the moral equivalent of war language from the left when they talk about spending. Because if you have to save yourself from literal destruction or civilizational destruction, you spend whatever you have to. It's like you use as much water as the fire department <laughs> needs to put out the, ho- you know, the fire in your house. 
do people in America really think that we are in a in an existential crisis for our survival that is so extreme and severe that we are going to risk all of these downsides and all of these problems in order to satisfy the interests of a coterie of people who believe that the federal government should pay for childcare? You know how we know the American people don't think that um, climate change is uh, equal to, say, the threat of uh, the Axis powers in World War II? Because they don't act like it individually. And we know that more than ever now because we've seen for a year what the American people act like when they think they are actually facing um, an existential threat. Um, they they over indulge in protective behavior and lockdown measures and restrict what their normal freedoms, all the things that you, that they would supposedly be doing if they thought that um, their extra car trip or their plastic bag or whatever else was actually going to destroy the planet. We've seen exactly how people act under that kind of threat. That's a, that's an excellent point. Of course, in the 1940s and during wartime, people, People surrender civil liberties. They, they, you know, they, they Fashion. do, they do, uh, they do, you know, uh, scrap metal drives. I mean, everybody in the United States felt like they were part of the war effort, right? So if Amer- the American people thought that we were, we were on a war footing in relation to climate change, uh, a lot of things that the left would want, you know, including like, don't use your lights. Don't don't use your air conditioning. You know, yeah. Don't don't take road trips. All that would yeah would happen organically, without anybody having to tell people to 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 do it. I think that's a very original way of looking at it. And of course, we also know they don't because there are polls, and they you know eleven percent of people say climate change is the worst is is, is the thing they're <laughs> they're most worried about. But- and believe me, by the end of this year. You know what's going to be at like 40%? Crime. Crime will be the, the number one issue that people in America are worried about. You know where climate change will be? Exactly where it is now, somewhere in the high single digits. How dare you, John? How dare you? <laughs> Sorry, I'm but channeling it, Greta know, for, those oh, of, yes. for those of you who oh, don't Greta, know. Yes. But, well, but, to. but to, to Abe's point, I think that's why you do need to front a movement with a scolding teenager in order to get people's attention for it in a way that you didn't have to. With COVID, you had, you know, a scolding Fauci uh, I- instead. But can I also point out that the Biden administration's logic for some of this spending uh, shifts based on the questions you ask them. So, for example, sometimes it's climate change, this crisis, you know, we have to, this is why we're going to throw all this money at these. Then it's, well, why is, as a percentage of the budget, defense spending will decline? It, they're not going to decrease actual spending. It will continue to rise. But as a percentage of what we spend overall, it will decrease in this in this budget proposal. And yet we're supposed to be, the way to be competitive with China evidently is to throw money at green technology. We'll become an economic powerhouse if we do this. So there's all these weirdly shifting rationales, depending on which reporter is asking the friendly softball question to the administration. But when you try to piece them all together, you get a crazy quilt. It doesn't really hold, it doesn't make sense in the way that a an economic, uh, overarching economic plan should at this point in time. Um, the other, there are a couple of really fascinating details in the story, uh, you know, mitigating factors in the story, like, look, uh, okay. So the debt is now in excess of a hundred percent of the, of, of the GDP. 
federal government's uh, debt burden and overall level of debt is higher than the than the than the GDP of the United States. Fine, good point. Um, that's terrible. Um, that is a matter of a relatively recent vintage. I'm looking here at a chart of the last uh, I don't know 30 years. Okay, so let's go back to 1994. Uh, which was the year that we f- we emerged from um, a, a very mild economic downturn uh, in 92 and a bit in 93. So in 1994, uh, debt as a percentage of GDP was 63%. And it remained through the Clinton years around 60, 63%. And last year of the, uh, last year of the Clinton presidency into the first year of the, of the Bush presidency, uh, the debt fell to 54% and then rose after 9-11 and Iraq and Afghanistan, 54 to 55 to 57. By the time Bush was out of office, it was back at like 60%, uh, 61%. And then came the economic meltdown, uh, the financial crisis, uh, and we jumped in one year to 74%. And then we jumped in 2010 to 84%. And then we jumped in 2011 to 92%. And then in 2012 to 95%. And then in 2013 to 99%. Since 2014, debt as a percentage of GNP, as a percentage of GDP, rose over 100%. But in it was in 2020, because of the pandemic, and uh, and the initial coronavirus spending that debt jumped to 122% of GDP, right? Once in a lifetime crisis. So here's what we have: we have a once in a lifetime crisis in the financial meltdown that causes a almost 20% increase in the level of of debt as a percentage of GDP, and then uh, a like 12% increase. Uh, in 2020 as a result of the of the pandemic and that number is going to be much higher i think in 2021 so we have a relatively you know modest debt as a percentage of gdp crises hit 9/11 the financial meltdown and the pandemic that lead to jumps what do we have now the main phenomenon that we are facing now is the end of the pandemic we're we're ending the period that led to crisis spending that increased uh, the the level of our debt, and yet we have this administration which is attempting to create that crisis spending as the floor, as the floor going forward and not the ceiling. <clears throat> and everybody seems to have forgotten that our non discretionary spending, interest payments, and uh, entitlement spending is going to hit a brick wall this decade. Um, according to the last uh, estimates you saw from the trustees, at least in Medicare, it was, I think, 2024 that the Medicare's hospital insurance fund becomes insolvent. Uh, and I bet that timeline has has increased. Same with Social Security. It was supposed to be in the early 2030s, and I bet you it's this decade now. And when you reach that, you know, everybody used to talk about the 100% GDP threshold as being like a real crisis point. Now we seem to have forgotten it, but it really does matter because when when people start to think the government can't really service the interest on this sort of thing or that interest pr- payments alone are going to suck up so much of the federal budget that it's going to preclude other spending on non-discretionary stuff, 
that you can't just not, you can't not do it. You have to do it. Then confidence disappears. Then all of a sudden investors start to wonder whether the federal government can, can borrow at rates that are affordable. And then credit begins to dry up and then people can't afford a mortgage and students can't, can't get a student loan and entrepreneurs start, start getting a business. You stop buying a car. All this stuff starts drying up. And what happens when there's a credit crunch? What does the government want to do? It wants to liquidate. It wants to provide liquidity into the economy. It wants to spend more. And you get this cycle. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in the, the debt crisis that conservatives talked about for years and somehow just, you know, sort of materializes overnight. And that's how it'll happen. It'll happen like that. Right. Well, this is, goes away. It goes away real quick. Right. This is an incredibly important point because right now, as we speak, so 62% of the federal, of federal spending in 2019 was mandatory spending. That's health programs, social security, and income security. That's 62% of overall spending. Okay. Uh, a total, let me look here, of about $2.7 trillion, something like that. So what we're talking about here is, uh, by the way, in this number of mandatory spending, we do not put defense spending, which oddly enough should, some portion of it should probably be assigned to that since it's not really discretionary <laughs> but yeah but it's not but, discre- it's discretionary spending technically it is technically and it is the largest by far the largest element of our discretionary spending it's about a f- it's about uh right you know about 700 uh, billion out of uh i don't know 2.7 trillion or whatever um it's about half of total discretionary spending but so what we're what we're doing is at, but this this mandatory spending number is rising and it rises because people retire and it rises because there's greater spending on on healthcare matters and not only as people retire but all of that and so that number is supposed to hit you know the 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 cliff that we're talking about is that is that mandatory spending numbers are supposed to reach about a hundred percent of federal tax intake, some point either toward the end of this decade or the beginning of the 2030s. That's not going to stop. The idea that you would then layer on three or four trillion dollars of new spending when you are facing this relentless and unstoppable increase in mandatory spending, it seems almost demented. And it only exists because there is this theory, and we should get to the theory, which is that Republicans don't care about spending anymore, so yeehaw, let's go. After I talked to you about the X chair, that super, that luxury supercar of office chairs, um, because we all have a newfound appreciation after the last year or so of uh, the kind of comfort we need when we are sitting working at home and certainly at the office, we always had this problem, but now we're at home, a lot of us, and staying at home, and you really got to find a place to sit that isn't going to throw out your back. Um, and that's the X chair uh, with its secret dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to your lower back. And their new XHMT technology, which provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. It goes right to your core. It helps increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, all perks 
that make working from the X chair a joy. It even has four different massage modes and fast warming heat technology for therapy when you're sore. So instead of sitting in that old, uncomfortable office chair, look forward to spending hours sitting in the ultimate therapeutic massager. You won't believe the X chair difference until you feel the X chair difference for yourself. X chair is on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. So what I was saying is that the general per- perception here is that uh, Republicans stopped caring about spending. Republican Party was the party of uh, you know that hated deficits, and then, of course, hated uh, the Obama uh, spending priorities in two thousand nine, giving birth to the Tea Party and to the to the kind of populist grassroots revolt that led to the twenty ten shellacking of the Democratic Party in the House. Um, the the uh, the the Democratic retconning of of twenty. 2009-2010, given their uh, obsessive focus on all things race, has now become, well, this really happened because Obama was was black, and that's why it was all racist. Um, Anyone who actually remembers what was going on there and in that period knows that that's nonsense. Uh, There was genuine alarm about a a fundamental uh, uh, change in the way way people in government were now talking about spending and and about uh, and about things like uh, the sanctity of 800 years of contract law and all of that, and the never let a crisis going to waste by creating new opportunities for large scale uh, social spending uh, the, of the sort that Democrats wanted. So uh, Donald Trump came in. And, you know, Republicans were still in 2015, 2016 talking about how Democrats want to spend and we don't want to spend and all that. And Trump was like, I don't care about any of that, basically. And then he went on to run a presidency in which he did not, in which focusing on the notion that we really needed to do something about entitlements and all that. Remember, that was Paul Ryan's main issue in life was we had to deal with the fiscal cliff represented by the by entitlement spending. Uh, so it was no longer Ryan's party. It was Trump's party. And now Republicans don't care and they don't care about it and they don't care. And so, uh, they don't have any right to talk about Democrats and their insane spending. Okay. But there's a, there's a, uh, a similar track of messaging that was going on at the same time that, that we have to consider as well. And that's the, the, uh, you know, government support for citizens is a human right. You know, rent control is a human right. You know, f- uh, free uh, getting rid of college debt is a human right. Everything became a right on the left, <laughs> if that makes sense. And there's a there's a way in which it's very difficult to combat that language as a politician in the same way that, you know, if someone passes the Violence Against Women Act, if you oppose parts of the Violence Against Women Act, then you're opposing, viol- you know, you're supporting violence against women. So there's a way in which that messaging has been extremely effective when it comes to fiscal responsibility. The Republicans have not been creative enough about combating that. Yeah, but you also you also have to commit yourself to a certain level of stupidity to do that. And I'm sorry, populism has a tendency towards this feature. Yes, this it assumes true. ignorance in its interlocutors because it's not hard to make an argument against rent control. Rent control makes it harder for you to rent. It means that people are going to hold on to their properties, or they're going to just condo them, or they're just going to not make improvements to them. Because why? 
They're not getting replacement level uh, income from it. So rent control just ends up being regressive. It hurts poor people. It's not hard to make that case. You just have to be terrified of the fact that some idiot is going to come around behind your back and say, you hate poor people. But it, but emotionally, and with the media aiding and abetting the messaging, to Abe's point about how how does the government show it cares? How does a politician show he or she cares? They throw money at a problem. There's a way in which the, the story of the single mother with her children cast out on the streets because she, her terrible landlord, who's a rich person, is the sort of subtext, even though I agree with you, Noah, that the messaging, the emotional appeal of the left's message on a lot of these fiscal matters is just more successful. I don't, I don't agree with it. And I think you're totally right, Noah. But we've yet to find a Republican politician. And Paul Ryan really did try with entitlements to, to tell a story about what it meant. And he didn't entirely succeed, but at least he made an effort. I don't see anyone in the Trump-dominated Republican Party doing that now. Again, it won't be hard when there are forcible cuts to the amount of benefits that can be produced or can be doled out in Social Security and Medicare, for example. And that's not hard to tell that story because it's going to produce human suffering. Look, the things that are going to create the crisis conditions for Biden in this regard are that you can't just increase federal spending by $3 trillion and say that you're going to make that up by taxing rich people a little more. That is not the way taxation works. It's a lie. It's a fantasy. It's a cheap and easy way to tell people that it's not going to cost them if there's all this other spending, somebody else is going to pay for it. It doesn't work. We have a hundred years of tax policy to tell us that it doesn't work. If you make the act of producing income onerous such that more than half of your income goes to somebody else, goes to the federal government, people who have enough are going to sit on their money and they're not going to try to make it more productive or to work at it if there's going to be expropriation of it. That's You can say that that's bad, that they should do it because they're supposed to, but I noticed that the sort of people who say that, for the most part, tend to be people who want to take it from other people and not from themselves. If you said to them, look, 60% of what you do, you're not going to be able to keep. And it's not just the United States that shows this. <laughs> we have five decades of your, of the uh, European economic doldrums that, that, that suggested and, <laughs> and, and taxation policy everywhere to suggest that this is not even, uh, this is not even a debatable proposition. The idea that the rich aren't paying their fair share and you're going to make them pay their fair share depends on a fantasy that you can coerce people into continuing to work the way that they work while you take more of what they have without them saying, I'm not going to just do as much as I did before because I don't want to, you know, I'm not working for myself anymore. I'm working for somebody else who I'm not related to and who, by the way, doesn't even seem to like me very much because all they do is talk shit about me. I mean, that, you know, so that that is America, that is the history of American taxation. So it sounds really good. You know, here's another thing that sounds good. Let's increase corporate tax. It's terrible. Corporations don't pay enough in taxes. We need to increase corporate taxes. Would you guys like to know how much 
uh, in corporate tax, how much the uh, um, intake of the government comes from corporate taxation. Hold on a second. I'm going to dig up this number because I, I, I was stunned by it, I got to say. <clears throat> 7%. Corporate income taxes make up 7% of the total revenues of the federal government. $242 billion as of 2019. So if you one of the hilarious things that the Biden administration is doing right now, and it is hysterical, is this global push to get everybody to have a 15% corporate tax rate so that we can have a higher corporate tax rate and you will make yourself less competitive so that we will enjoy the benefits of this. Nations like Ireland are saying, no, I will not make myself a less competitive business environment so that you can spend trillions of dollars on literally nothing that'll have no effect on your GDP. Why? Why should I do that? It's, but here, here's it's, the point. It's, it's, it's funny because it's utopian in this way that they perceive themselves to be the, you know, the, the vanguard of this global ethos that's emerging. And there is no global ethos emerging. It's just all in your head. Right. So double the corporate income tax number that I just cited you, right? Double it. It's amazing. They raise corporate income taxes. They 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 close loopholes. They did whatever. Goes up to five hundred billion dollars. Fourteen percent of total revenues or something. Five hundred billion dollars. They want to spend three trillion dollars. Like I, you know, that's fantastic. How much of federal ta- uh, income comes from? Revenues, as we call it, comes from individual income and payroll taxes. 86%. 86%. The individual income tax burden in the United States is 50%. Payroll taxes account for 36%. Of course, those payroll taxes, those are all essentially theoretically earmarked to pay for the mandatory spending, right? That's what they're for. It's Medicare and Social Security. Uh, and it's not enough to pay for that since we're at 62% of federal spending is discretionary and we're only collecting 36%. If you, if you have a fantastic couple of years and you do things where you raise income taxes and a lot more money comes in, right? So how much more are you going to get? How much more of this can you squeeze to get the revenue? That's why the Republican story, really since Reagan, has been the only way to get more money for government is to do whatever you can to stimulate economic growth, because economic growth means that individual income taxes and corporate income taxes and all of that come in you know, uh, without any, you don't have to raise taxes to get more money. In increased economic activity brings in more money into the federal coffer. But this is, can I interject to say, this is where the Biden messaging is really uh, weird because they're marketing this as we're going to create a bigger, more thriving middle class. But instead of talking about how to do that through entrepreneurship and growth, it's literally the government will create the middle class. And this is what they want. They want union jobs. They want to return weirdly to a kind of 1950s era middle class that was union dominated, government supported. It's completely not viable in today's economy. You know, that reminds me, there's a difference I've noticed because I, I watch like a lot of 
sort of old left propaganda film and things of that nature. And we're always talking about the difference between sort of the left of the 60s and 70s and and today. Um, back then, there was this constant slogan of uh, power to the people, because the idea was that the government was bad. People were good, but the government was set against us. Today, on the left, it is almost the opposite. We're all bad. We're, we're, we're like, you know, we're born evil. Um, but the government can correct us, can fix us. They are, they are, if you just get the right do-gooders in there, they will enforce upon us a more fair system. And that is, that points to, uh, Christine, I think what, what the Biden administration is after there. See, this is why our, our listeners want more aid. That is such an important point. By the way, two, two things about that. So, of course, the interesting thing about power to the people, which was a 60s, you know, which was a 60s slogan, is that it ended up benefiting the right because it was the right that had the critique of government that ended up resonating with the American people. It wasn't that the government was bad because it went abroad and, you know, was fighting communism. That that didn't bother people. What bothered people was the idea that these bureaucrats in Washington and and the IRS and people like that were coming and taking your money from you. The people were good and the government was bad because self-governance was being threatened by the growth of government. So that that slogan may have begun as a kind of students for a democratic society, you know, uh, weird kind of Maoist uh, idea of, you know, power rising from the youth and all of that. But it, it went entirely in the other direction. The other weird aspect of the building the middle class is that that was not the emphasis of the Democratic Party in the first half or the first two thirds of the uh, American, uh, you know, the, of the 20th century. Democratic Party was the party of the poor. It was the party of poor people. And it was trying to figure out ways to help poor people as, 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 best, as best they could. That was the Democratic Party. The party of the middle class was the Republican Party. The party of like the small, the guy who had a shop on Main Street in Muncie, Indiana, was the Republican Party. Um, and so, and the middle class was a lot smaller. Uh, the middle class grew and became a thing after the Second World War. We were like every other country on Earth. We were dominated by by. The working the working class that was employment in the United States with people working in labor intensive industries at relatively low wages, uh, relatively unskilled, um, who did repetitive acts of you know hard labor, um, and and the the economy shifted over time. But the middle class was the was the Republican Party. Democrats want the middle class, but they want to treat it like it's the working class. They want to treat it like the middle class is a dependent population on on government. And that's a very interesting and weird shift because, of course, this is where we start getting into these uh, uh, socio-political cultural crosshairs that we now say are the result of the big sort and, you know, Democrats living in blue areas and uh, Republicans living in red areas. But... Uh, when you get to people who are angry about lockdowns or angry about politicians, you know, exerting emergency powers and all of that, this then starts falling very much along the same lines. And the lines are, my goal in life 
is to be disturbed as little as possible by by officious people who want to tell me what to do. I follow the rules. I pay my taxes. You know, I'm a good citizen. I go to church. I do community work. I raise my kids. I do all this. Leave me alone. Don't tell me. And, you know, it's like weird things where you think, why do people care about that? Don't tell me where to wear a motorcycle helmet. Don't tell me to wear a seatbelt. Don't tell me where I can smoke. Don't tell in all of this. And this is viewed in certain kind of quarters of the new class as, you know, just kind of like weird libertarian mania. But if you think about it, it is the necessary offshoot of a country that believes in a self-governing citizenry, which is if you have a self-governing citizenry, Andrew Cuomo can't tell you how many people can sit in your restaurant. The people can tell you how many people can sit in their restaurant. They're scared of COVID. They're not going to come in and sit there. And you can tell them how many people can sit in the restaurant because you don't want to get COVID and you want them to wear masks and you want them to sit six feet apart. And that's your choice. But this notion that all of these decisions come from the top down, that is the ultimate bias of the Biden economic agenda. And it's why, despite the last years of Republicans not caring about this and all of that, this dovetails very neatly with the almost certain blowback that this budget is going to get, all of which has been in penumbras and emanations over the last four or five months with talk about the CARES Act and then talk about the infrastructure plan and talk about the childcare stuff and all of that. This codifies it and therefore it becomes a gigantic, huge target. And the two things that are going to accelerate it and make it into a huge political issue are the inflation that's already started and the public disorder that is that that we're now uh, in the and grips of on on the on the crime issue in particular. Notice the weird switch they make on that issue. There, the top down approach is is excoriated for being racist, or you know, we got to focus on decarceration. And they talk about community violence. They don't talk about individuals behaving violently, or they talk about gun violence. You know, there's a way in which. On the economic message, top-down is always good. On the crime message, oh, well, that's just problems for local police to, who need reforming and occasional Justice Department intervention to deal with. So they're not, they don't want to tackle that issue because it's not a good issue for them. And with that, uh, we thank you again for your kind words and your kind emails. And so, yeah, we'll be doing this daily for the foreseeable future. So we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.